All right, church. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. We are going to start in Matthew. I said Matthew 17, but we're going to start at the last verse of Matthew 16 this morning. The, the title of this morning's message is No Equal. And let's pray and we'll jump right into it. Papa, as we come before you, we thank you for all that's happened so far. As we've worshipped you in spirit and in truth. As we have fellowshiped and greeted one another. As we have remembered a 29th wedding anniversary. As we have dedicated two children and their parents to you. And Papa, now we open your word. It is living It is active. It is alive. As we read your word this morning, your word is going to read us. I pray that each one of us would hear your voice so that we would know, God, what it is that you require of us. And I pray this morning, the Holy Spirit, you would work through me. I am inadequate for the task at hand. Empower me for the work this morning, this service. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Pastor, why are you starting in chapter 16, verse 28? When you read the Bible, you only read it in chapter sections. And when you reach the end of a chapter, that's the end of a thought, and then you start a new one. I have devotions, and that's the way my devotions work. They work, and they end at chapter breaks, generally speaking. Well, here's why. Because the chapter breaks were not in the original text. What I mean is, for example, Matthew, as he's writing this, Matthew didn't say, okay, chapter 16, verse 1, and then write a sentence, and then write verse 2, and then write a sentence. Matthew didn't do that. None of the Bible writers wrote in chapters and verses. They were added afterwards. Uh Uh-oh, why were they added afterwards? Here's why, really practical. What if I said this morning, hey, good morning, church. Let's open up to the book of Matthew, the 10,467th word. I'll wait till you get there. It just helps us to access God's word. That's why there's chapter and verse references in there. But what we need to remember, though, as we look at this, is sometimes the chapter and the verse references, it might have been better if it had broken in a slightly different place. We left off last Sunday at a very interesting thing that Jesus said, and it didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Let's read it together. Matthew 16, follow along with me. Matthew 16, verse 28. Jesus speaking, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Okay. That verse has definitely been perplexing to many because it appears that what Jesus is saying is some of you that are alive and standing before me right now, you will not taste death. You will not die before you see me coming back a second time. Well, that's where a critic of the Bible and of Jesus could easily go, well, um, they're all dead and Jesus didn't come back a second time. His second coming hasn't happened. And you're right. His second coming hasn't happened. Aha. Uh-huh. Problem with the Bible. No. The last verse in chapter 26 would be best placed as the very first verse of chapter 17. So the last verse of chapter 16 would be better if it was just moved just past the chapter break to chapter 17. We're going to read a few verses in chapter 17. Follow along. And I think it'll make more sense what Jesus was saying. Verse 28, chapter 16. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James and John, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. 
And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. When we read the verses together like that, Jesus says, some of you right here will see me in my glory. And a few verses later, some of them see Jesus in his glory. He wasn't speaking about his second coming when he said that to them. He said, a few of you guys, a few of you disciples will get to see the glory of me and my kingdom shortly before you die. And sure enough, there it was just a few verses later. You know, um, this is a powerful passage of scripture. The transfiguration, it must be powerful because it's got a, a name for it, right? The transfiguration. Jesus takes him up on a high mountain. Okay, high mountain, where would this be? It could be any number of mountains, although in Israel, their mountains are not mountains like we think about. They're not like the Appalachians or the Rocky Mountains that we have here in the United States. They're more like hills. The picture behind me on your bulletin, Mount Tabor, is in Israel. And not this one, actually, we can just go back to the cover screen. And on the cover screen, that one right there, that is uh, Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor, it's a very large hill, but they would call it a mountain there in Israel. It's near the Sea of Galilee area. Oh, could this be the place that Jesus went up? Like you put your little stylized, you know, beams of light. Is that kind of what it could have been like? Maybe it was on Mount Tabor. There's some other places it could have been. There's also Mount Moron. Mount Moron, we have the view of Mount Moron looking down. It's a ways up there and you're looking down on the valley below. It's also near the Sea of Galilee. Could it have happened up here on Mount Moron? Sure, the transfiguration could have happened on Mount Moron. But there, is there anything taller in Israel? Like, is there any like mountain mountains? Okay, Mount Hermon or Mount Hermon. And you can see it off in the distance with the snow, right? This is on the northern border of Israel and it is a very tall mountain. And, and I think we would say, yeah, that's a, that's a proper mountain, right? Like, okay, there's snow on the top of that. That's a mountain. Could the, mount, could the transfiguration of Jesus, this amazing event we're about to read about, could it have happened on Mount Hermon there? It's possible. Yeah, it's possible. It could have happened up there. Jim, you don't seem very sure about where it could have happened. That's because we're not exactly sure where it happened. And so I'm not here to just suddenly go, it was definitely here, it was definitely there. Although you kind of look at this and I, you may go, wait a second, was Jesus? I never pictured Jesus trudging through the snow. Mount Hermon has times where there isn't snow on the mountain. So uh, it is possible that it could have happened up there and the disciples and Jesus weren't standing in you know, deep snow up there. But here's the thing. Never underestimate a human's ability to make anything an idol, including a location. Oh, this is a holy place. Why is it holy? Pastor Jim teaches from like this, this carpet here. We're going to put this thing on eBay because, and we're going to say, it's a carpet. We got it on sale at, I don't know, Target, Kmart, someplace. I don't know. It's just a carpet. Well, this mountain, it's just a mountain. And yet we can get fixated on things and places. When I went to Israel, I was, I was absolutely amazed by people's ability to go, this is the location and people are kissing spots. And I get it. I understand that, hey, something amazing could have, could have happened here. But we forget what happened here and who was there. And instead we start worshiping the place. 
we build something on top of it and we remember, I get it, it's to remember an event, but human beings, you know what they do? They don't remember the event, they remember the place. I think it's really awesome that we don't know exactly where the Mount of Transfiguration happened. You know why? Because they probably would have built something on there. The Mount of Transfiguration Amusement Park. Come, enjoy the rides, and see where Jesus was transfigured. I'm just so glad we don't know the exact spot. There is, by the way, on one of those, Mount uh, Moron, I think we could put that up, was that view that we saw looking down. Uh, There is uh, the Church of the Transfiguration built up here. So it's already happened, by the way. But wait, is that exactly the spot? Don't know. I just want to encourage you with this. Don't focus on location as much as you focus on Jesus the Savior. If you start focusing on location and places and things, you may start to worship a location or a thing rather than the living and true God. So just a thought there for you. Jesus takes some disciples up with him. He had 12 of them. How many did he take up? Only three. Oh, these are the extra special guys. These must be the extra, like the ones that were loved more than the others, right? No, no, it's not like that at all. Peter, James, and John. What do we know about Peter? Well, what's there to say about Peter? A lot to say about Peter, his personality. We'd call him the ready, fire, aim kind of a guy. Act first and maybe think it through a little bit later. But who did Jesus take with Peter, James and John? You know what their nicknames were? The sons of thunder. You don't get a nickname like that for no reason. So Jesus is taking Peter, ready, fire, aim, and the sons of thunder with him. Some people say, and there's some commentators that said, maybe Jesus took these three. He had responsibilities for them in the future with his kingdom. Some special responsibilities that he wanted to share with them. But also, here's a thought, and this one just made me smile. They just needed a little extra attention from Jesus. Because they had that personality. They were the ones where maybe the other disciples were more (laughs) well-adjusted. But then there was Peter. Peter, can you shut your mouth, please? Is it possible? James and John. What is up with you, sons of thunder? Maybe Jesus was like, hey, you three, come with me. Let's go for a walk. Where are we going? Up there. Okay. So Jesus takes three disciples with him. He calls them to himself. He calls them to spend time with him, away from the crowd. It's important that you and I realize this principle here, that there's times where God's going to call you and I away from the crowd. Who's the crowd? The world, right? Well, yes, the world. But you know, sometimes Jesus will call you away from other Christians too. Why? Because he wants to just talk to you. But what's wrong with other Christians? Nothing's wrong with other, Well, there's things wrong with other Christians, but he wants you to go right to the source. And the source, it's not other Christians. It's Jesus himself. And Jesus says, come away with me. It's too loud where you are. It's too distracting where you are. It's too, come away with me. I want to speak to you and I want to share some things about your future. Really important things. You've got stuff that's coming ahead on your timeline and you don't know about them yet. And I want to share some things to you before you reach those important points in life. Did this ever happen before? I mean, this like this group of guys, Peter, James, and John, like this, this is amazing one-time event. It's not a one-time event. This has happened before. Make note, Luke chapter 8, verse 51 through 54. The event that happened, the leader of the synagogue, his name was Jairus, his daughter has died. That's the scene, Luke chapter 8, verse 51 through 54, on the screen behind me. And when he, Jesus, came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except, oh, look at these three names, Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. 
And all were weeping and mourning for her. There's a lot of people outside the house now. But he said, do not weep for she is not dead, but sleeping. Verse 53. And they laughed at him knowing that she was dead. That's probably an inappropriate response to a dead child right there. But they were overcome by the craziness of Jesus' statement. She's not sleeping, Jesus. She's dead. And then verse 54. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And Jesus miraculously raised her from the dead. Who was in the house to witness this with their eyeballs? Mom and dad. Jesus was doing the amazing work. And who else? Peter, James, John. Wow. Well, that's pretty cool. They had two events where Jesus called them aside to spend some extra time with them and show them something amazing. Actually, Jesus did it at least a third time. Mark chapter 14, verse 32 through 36. And this is before Jesus' arrest. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows he's about to get arrested. His disciples don't. They just know that Jesus has a heavy heart about something. Mark 14, verse 32 through 36. And they went to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So he told the the 12. He said, sit here, the 11. Judas wasn't there. Sit here while I pray. Verse 33. And he took with him Peter, oh wow, and James and John. And being greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. What an honor to be called by Jesus in a time of his suffering. Hey, I want you to be near me. I want you to witness me suffer. I want you to get a really close look with your own eyeballs at me sorrowing. Not everybody's going to get this opportunity, but I want you three to see me. And not only that, it gets even more intense. Look as it goes further. Verse 35, and going a little further, he didn't go much further. He fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour may pass for him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will but what you will. So Jesus didn't travel that much further in the Garden of Gethsemane, which means these three disciples who were told by Jesus, you sit here and you pray and you wait. So they're here waiting and they see Jesus go not that much further and see him overcome by the weight he's bearing. What weight is it? Your sins and my sins. And then you know what they get the privilege of hearing? They get the privilege of hearing the son and the father having conversation. These three witnessed Jesus in his submission to the Father. These three men witnessed Jesus in his power. And these three men witnessed Jesus in his glory. His glory? Yeah, we're going to get to that in our chapter today in Matthew chapter 17. These three men were being prepared for ministry, for sure. The stuff that, how they would serve the Lord. But here's what they were prepared for. We talked about this last week. Last week was like the death message, right? Jesus was preparing them for death. He was preparing them for death. Whose death? Jesus' death, right? Jesus' death, yes, but Peter, James, and John's death as well. He was preparing them for their death that was to come. How did they die? Well, James died first. Do we know how James died? Yes, we do. It's actually in the Bible. Acts chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So that was the way that James died. 
You know, death and this idea. Oh no, death is, I don't, I want to get as far away from death as possible. Christian, death is one door away from you being in the presence and seeing Jesus face to face. That's the closest it is for the Christian to see Jesus face to face. What is it? Death. Why wouldn't you want to not like, I'm going to run to the door and like try to open? No. But when that door shows up one day in your life, you suddenly realize, oh, look, oh, this is the door. It's here. You don't have to go, oh, no, oh, no, death is here. What, do you not know what's on the other side? Everything you've been looking forward to. All of the hopes and the dreams. No sorrow, no pain, no suffering. You'll never be misunderstood. Perfect communication. And you'll be able to express your heart perfectly to God and to others. Well, I want to get there. There's a door you got to go through. It's death. And this is where, for the Christian, the world says one thing about death and Jesus says something polar opposite. Now, so we can clear up some confusion here, if there is any. I'm not saying I'm supposed to rush towards death and just die, commit suicide right now so that I could... No, that's not it. And how do we know that that's not what we're supposed to do? Because Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years and he knew what his door was. And he didn't rush it. He let it take the time that it needed because there were things that needed to be done here on this earth before he stepped through that door. James was the first to die by the sword, right? That happened in 43 AD. Peter died second. When Peter died, he died, as church history will tell us, on a cross, crucified. But Peter said, it is not worthy that I should die in the same manner as my Savior. I'm not worthy to die the way Jesus died. If you're going to crucify me, crucify me upside down. And that's the door for Peter, was that he was crucified upside down. What about John? Well, if James died in 43 AD, John lived to a ripe old age because he died in 98 AD. John outlasted all the other disciples. And John, as church history will tell us, Tertullian, he's an early church father. He records that John was taken to Rome and as his, to be martyred. And when, to be martyred, his method of being martyred was to be dropped in oil, to be boiled in oil. And that's what happened with John. You're like, there you go. John was crisped. He was dead. Except John didn't die. What? Yeah, that's probably what everybody was saying. What? At which point it's like he didn't die like his savior didn't die. Yeah. But what happened with John then? John then gets exiled to an island, a remote island called Patmos, where he lived out his days. And he died in about 98 AD. So some died sooner, like James. Some died much later, like John. Oh, I wish I could live a longer life. I would like you to consider this, though. And I think those of you that are older here, you can understand better than even I can what's, what this feeling is like. But the feeling that all your friends are dying. And all your friends, you know, you, you start to hear more and more. You look at the obituaries and you see more and more people that you recognize. The age of the people that are dying are now getting closer to your age. And then all of a sudden, the people that are dying are younger than you. And you realize, wow. And maybe for you, you start to see your friends disappear because they've died. 
Could you imagine for John? Because some would go, oh, for John, he got to kick it back on a nice island of Patmos. He didn't get to die except of old age. I don't know. I think in some ways that's a much worse death. As you hear news, oh, John, another message has come. Oh, another dear friend has gone to be with Jesus. I'm happy for them, but I'm sad for me. Oh, and another one. Oh, and another one. Oh, and another one. Sometimes it's like, oh, I just wish I lived a really, really long life. Hey, if that's what the Lord has for you, praise the Lord. But you do realize that life in eternity is infinitely better than life here on earth, right? So why do you want to prolong your days here on this earth beyond what God may even want? Why? Have you forgotten where home actually is? Jesus showed Peter, James, and John hey, I want you to watch me in the process. I'm going to watch you. I want you to see me in suffering. I want you to see me go to the cross. I want you to see me die. Oh, and by the way, I want you to also watch me resurrect. Because here's the thing. If we follow Jesus in death, which we're called to follow, every Christian is called to follow Jesus in death. Here's the thing. We realize that where does death lead us? It's just a door and it leads us to life. How do we know it? Because Jesus resurrected from the dead. So those that follow after Jesus follow in his death and his resurrection. Can I get the resurrection without the death? It doesn't work that way. You can't resurrect unless you die. And so for every Christian, we are called to die, to die to ourselves, to die to what we say and we think is important. Imagine this thought. Imagine if somebody told you how, when, and where you were going to die. What if God, the voice of God, just spoke to you and said, let's use an example. Let's use uh, Jim, since I'm here, right? Jim, love you, son. You're going to die. Okay. And I'm going to tell you how. I don't know if I want to know. It's going to happen on the corner of L and 16th Street. That's right there. That's right. That's. And what's going to happen is, it's going to happen later in the year football season will have started someone will come to first service but their team is playing and so they've backed their car into a spot over at arcada high school so that they may make a quick exit they didn't stay for the last song they slipped out the back door at the last song to get into their car so that they could leave to get home to watch their team play and in their rush they pulled out their cell phone really bad shouldn't do that to check up the score not seeing the pastor who had simply come to love the people on the corner It's a good story. Let me go with it. And then at that moment, looking up from their cell phone, thinking about being home and watching their team play, sees a lanky Indian standing at the corner. He flies like a badminton. He just goes. He just flies and he lands dead. By the way, your response to me dying, I don't know. That's a bit disturbing for me personally, but okay, that's fine. What if God was like, hey, Jim, so this is how it's going to happen? I don't know. What if God told you exactly how and where and would you suddenly change the way you live your life? Keep in mind, it's God that's telling you what's going to happen. That's when you find out whether you see death as a door or whether you see death as something to be absolutely avoided at all costs, like the rest of the world. Christian, death is a door. It's going to happen. Don't be afraid of it. It's a door. Are you afraid of doors? That's a door. I'm so afraid. No, you open it and you go and it leads you to someplace else. 
I know, but it's a door. It's just a door. Death is just a door for the Christian. And when you get to your door, it's the right time. And when you step through it, you know who you're going to see face to face? Jesus. Man, we are not moving very fast this morning. Verse 2. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Transfigured, it's the Greek word metamorpho. Oh, I wonder what word we get from that. Metamorphosis, metamorphic, if you're into geology. It means to change, to transform, to be transfigured. Oh, so the transfiguration of Jesus, the transfiguration of Christ could also be said as the metamorphosis of Christ. Yes. The transformation of Christ. Yes. The change of Christ. Yes. You know, we think about it as a, you know, a caterpillar builds a chrysalis around itself. It liquefies its body, becomes goo inside this chrysalis and gets reformed into a beautiful butterfly. Metamorphosis. Here's one. These are like, you know, rocks, metamorphic rocks, rocks that have been under extreme pressure. I think we have a few pictures of them. You kind of look at rocks and you go, something happened to these rocks, right? This is probably now not how it started. It looks like there was extreme pressure and maybe heat and something is different. Something's different about you. Yeah, a metamorphosis causes things to be different. I think we have some other rocks too. And if you kind of came across that, you'd be like, yeah, this is something, something, something happened here. Metamorphosis happened here. How awesome it is that these three disciples got to see Jesus glorified, transformed, you know, I, I, I don't really, these three guys, they get, they, they get to see this. I wish I could see it. You know the thing, Christian? Here's the promise. You and I will get to see the glorified Jesus. If you're a Christian, here's a promise for you. You will see the glorified Jesus. John wrote about this in 1 John 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. If you're a believer, a Christian, you are God's children now, and we will be And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. For Peter, James, and John, they couldn't even, they couldn't even look at Jesus. He was radiating like the sun. But there's going to come a time where you will be able to see him, be in his presence, and you will be like him. You're not going to become God. Please, that is not what it says. But the glory of God will be reflected off of you. That's an amazing thing. What is it going to be like to be transfigured? For you and I, Christian, to be transfigured. Stay tuned, it's coming soon. Luke tells us this, that while in Luke 9.29, Luke is a parallel passage. Luke and Mark tell us about what was happening on this mountain. Luke says in Luke 9, 29, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. His clothing became dazzling white. And for this pastor, as I read it, this passage, this time, something that stood out to me is it, it is surprising. It is amazing that Jesus was glowing like the sun, the top of that mountain, where it, whichever mountain it was, what was it like for everybody else to be like, it's like the sun just landed on top of that mountain. It is so bright. That's not what amazes me so much this time I read it. You know what amazed me is that Jesus had it veiled most of the time. If Jesus wanted to reveal who he really was to everybody, everybody would just be blinded. Where's Jesus? He's over there. You see, that's where he is. So Jesus, so that other people could be around him, clothed himself and veiled his glory. He revealed it and gave a sneak peek of the future to come. 
just to a few of his disciples. Now, here we are on this mountaintop. This is great, an amazing scene, except two more people show up on this mountaintop. Verse number three. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, hold on, stop, just a second here. Moses and Elijah. Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. Elijah has been dead for 900 years. Moses was the one who God used to bring the law to the people. Elijah was a prophet of God who foretold the coming of the Messiah. Wow, so you got somebody that represents the law and you got somebody that represents the prophets standing on this mountain with Jesus. It's one of those things where you're like, is this, could this ever happen, this meeting? And it did happen on this mountain. And Peter, James, and John are there to witness it and just go, amazing. And what does Peter do? He feels the intense need to talk. We can all suffer from foot and mouth disease from time to time. We can all speak. And even as we're speaking, we're thinking, why am I talking right now? And then we're trying to talk ourselves out of the fact that we're talking, which is only making the talking longer. But then there's some of us at certain points in time where we don't even realize that we shouldn't be talking at that moment. Hey, hey, stop, stop talking. Peter here, for who knows what reason, there's quite a few reasons, no doubt, that Peter would have had here, but Peter decided to speak to Jesus. Now, if we look very clearly at verse three, was Moses and Elijah, were they there talking to Peter? Was Jesus talking to Peter? No. So it's like this conversation is happening in this amazing light with Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, and they're talking to each other. Peter, James, and John are watching from a little distance here. I think we have a, an artwork too. This is from an artist called Wilhelm who just kind of sketched something like this. It's you know, just a, a sketch of Jesus and Elijah. And there's Moses. You know it's Moses because he's got the Ten Commandments there with him. He's got the tablets with him. And then you've got Peter, James, and John right down here, right? Who knows what it was exactly like, but just these thoughts. And you'll see a lot of artwork of the transfiguration. But Peter decided to interrupt Elijah I mean, uh, uh, yeah, to Elijah and Moses and Jesus and go, excuse me, guys, I'm so sorry. So sorry to interrupt. One second. Hey, listen, it's really good that we're here, isn't it? <laughs> oh, by the way, I'm really handy. I could build you guys some tents if you'd like. I could build you a tent, Jesus. I could build you a tent, Moses. I could build you a tent, Elijah. And we could all just like prolong this event that's happening up here. What do you think? Oh, Peter, Peter. You got to love Peter. We've all done it, right? We've all done it when we should have shut our mouth, but instead we just are running our mouth. Here's a thought for, for maybe what happened with Peter. Maybe Peter, when he saw Jesus and Moses and Elijah, he's like, and this is the second coming. It's happening. We got three people here already. More are coming. It's good that we're here. Okay, I'm going to give Peter the benefit of the doubt on this one. Just go, maybe he thought like this was it. Like it's happening right now. And it's not everybody, but it's kind of a slow trickle. We'll get more people from the past and the Old Testament will show up here. It'll be great. Maybe so, maybe so. But the problem with what Peter did is he didn't need to talk. <laughs> and the second thing is he kind of equated Moses and Elijah and Jesus all together. Hey, I'm going to build you all equal tenths. They're all going to be the same. But here's the thing, like the title of the message, Jesus is not equal to anyone. 
Jesus is above. Is he head and shoulders above? That's too close. He's infinitely above anyone else. And what happens, <laughs> what happens in this situation here is interesting. I wish, don't you wish you were up? Well, there's no walls there, but if fly on the wall where you could hear the conversation between Moses and Elijah and Jesus, like, what were they talking about? Hey, how you been? You look good. 1400 years. You look good. Good to see you back, Moses. Elijah, good to see you too. What were they talking about? I wish we knew what they were talking about. That was probably an amazing conversation. Oh, by the way, we know what they were talking about because the Bible tells us what they were talking about. We go to Luke's account, Luke chapter nine, verse 30, 31 and 32. What were they talking about? Here it is. And behold, Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of, what were they talking about? His departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So it gives us a little bit of insight here. How does Luke know Luke wasn't there? Because there was Peter, James, and John. And they were all able to tell the other disciples what happened. And they remember and emphasize different aspects of it. Luke emphasizes a very interesting aspect that these guys were asleep. They hiked up this hill, this mountain. They were tired. They're sleeping. Jesus is praying. And all of a sudden it's like, who turned on the light? Whoa. And they see Jesus and Moses and Elijah. So maybe with Peter, you know, you wake up, you're a little groggy, not really your best moment in life. <laughs> Peter gets up. He's like, well, it's good that we're here. It's good that we're here. <laughs> Peter, how about you wake up first? How about you just figure out what's going on? But more importantly about this passage is, do you see what they were talking about? Elijah and Moses and Jesus were talking about what Jesus was going to do, his departure. You know what they were talking about? We talked about it last Sunday, the cross. They were talking about the cross. How is Jesus going to depart the door? For him, it was the cross. Beware of a person who says they're a Christian or a church that does not talk about the cross. Because Jesus talks about the cross. And here on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah, they're talking about the cross as well. Here's a quote from Donald McLeod. He says, The attitude of the heavenly visitors differs completely from that of the disciples. The cross is all Moses and Elijah want to talk about. The cross is what all heaven was talking about. Even the angels were fascinated. First Peter chapter 1, verse 12 will even let you know that the angels were fascinated by God's plan. And what was the plan? The cross. It's always been the cross. We as Christians, you cannot cut the cross out of your speech and your conversation. Because here's the thing. Christianity without the cross is nothing. Oh, Jesus resurrected. You can't have a resurrection unless there's a death. And so there was a cross. I know the cross is, is uncomfortable to talk about because we are the reason why there was a cross. And even more personally, I'm the reason why there was a cross. And more personally for you, you're the reason why there was a cross for Jesus to hang on. Your sins, my sins are why he went to the cross. We cannot ever stop talking about the cross. So verse number five <clears throat> Peter is expounding about how he's such a great, great tent maker and he's going to make tents for Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And somebody interrupts Peter. At which point I think a lot of people are like, thank you, thank you. Verse five, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces 
and were terrified. This is the ultimate divine shut up. It's God just going and stop. Stop talking. There's something important happening. I've definitely gotten the divine shut up. Have you? I have. Oh, there's been times where the Lord has just been like, Jim, shut your mouth right now. And you then have to ask God for forgiveness because you realize, you know what? I'm sorry, Lord. I should have just been listening more than I was talking. It's one of these where the father is telling Peter here, I love you, but you don't know what you're talking about. So just stop right now. You know, when you see God in his glory, it affects you for the rest of your life. John talked about seeing the glory of God. Peter talked about seeing the glory of God. Look at this verse, uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 16 through 20. Peter didn't forget this moment. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths. Oh, Christianity is just this myth. Here's what Peter says. We do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For we, when, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the, majest, by the majestic glory. Here's the quote. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter didn't forget meeting Jesus in his glorified state. And you know what? It carried Peter. How far did it carry Peter? It carried him all the way to his cross, upside down. Sometimes we look at these... um, people, these Christians, and we just go, I don't know if I could do it. If I found myself in that place, I'm afraid that I would. It's because you're looking at the door and you're not looking at Jesus. You're afraid of the way that you will cross from this life into the next life. And that's paralyzing you. And by the way, if you're staring at the door, you can't be staring at the door and staring at Jesus at the same time. You can't. You can't be panicked about how you're going to die and be focused on Christ at the same time. You have to choose. You have to choose to go, Jesus, I'm focusing on you. And at some point, there's going to be a door. And whatever that is, I know you're going to give me the strength to go through it. And then I'm going to see you face to face. We should not be like the world, paralyzed by fear of death. Now, remember, God just told everyone there, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. I wonder what the next thing Jesus is going to say then. What's the first thing Jesus is going to say after the father says, listen to my son. Here it is, verse seven in your Bibles. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. The father said, listen to Jesus. The first thing Jesus said, stand up and don't be afraid. You know, that's a message, not just for Peter, James and John. That's a message for every follower of Jesus. Hey, stand up, stand up. Don't be terrified and cowering. Stand up and don't be afraid. Verse eight, and when they lifted up their eyes, because they heard the voice, they felt Jesus's hand, but they didn't look up yet. When they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And see, this shows you what it comes down to. It all comes down to Jesus. Was it Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, all three of them, a power team? All three of them like, hey, it's all of us. No, it's Jesus alone. A person is saved not through any other way except through Jesus alone. There's this Latin phrase, solo Cristo, which means 
by Christ alone. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 talks about what it takes to be in a right relationship with God and it involves Jesus alone. Look at this. Acts 4 verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius, not the many gurus in India. No, only Jesus. And on that Mount of Transfiguration, after all of that was gone, all the light and Moses and Elijah and everything, who was left there? They looked up and they saw Jesus. Verse number nine. And when they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. Can we also make a note there that Jesus told them that he was going to die and rise again from the dead? He very clearly told Peter, James, and John that he was going to rise from the dead. So when all the disciples fled after the garden of Gethsemane, at the cross, there were the women and there was John. And I wonder for John, as he's standing there looking up at Jesus on the cross, bearing the burden and weight of the sins of the world, for John to have these words echoing in his head, stand, do not be afraid. And for John to remember the words of Jesus as they were walking down the mountain together. Tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. For John to go, I cannot wait to tell people. I know what you said, Jesus. You're dying now, but you're going to resurrect. Of all the disciples, of all the men there, John was the only one that was standing at the cross. And he happened to be one of the three that was here at the transfiguration. A few more verses. Let's finish out this chapter. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that Elijah must, first Elijah must come? And he, Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Well, Elijah came in the Old Testament, prophesied about Jesus coming. Elijah was on the Mount of Transfiguration. But Jesus says that there's actually somebody else who is like Elijah, who has also come. He already came. Verse number 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, if you've been with us for this Matthew study early in the, in the gospel of Matthew, John the Baptist was the last prophet. John the Baptist was the prophet who got to tell people the Messiah is coming. And John the Baptist was the prophet who got to not just tell people the Messiah was coming. He was the one to see the Messiah. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was following in the steps of Elijah, a prophet prophesying the coming of Jesus. And that's what Jesus was telling the disciples. And the disciples understood, got it. That's John the Baptist. Now, as we come to a close here on this message, I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. But I have to ask you if you've seen the risen Lord. I have to ask you, in your life, have you experienced Jesus? It's not all about emotions. It's, our Christian faith is not all about emotions. But emotions are an aspect of our faith. And experience is an aspect of our faith. Have you had an experience where you have encountered the risen Christ, this glorified Jesus? Because if you have, it will carry you the rest of your life. How long, Jim, until you see your door and until you go through it? I am absolutely convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am so convinced of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that I changed my 
vocation, my job, if you will. I graduate with an aviation computer science degree 22 years ago. The job market is ready and I get job offers, but I've experienced the risen Christ and I heard the voice of Christ calling me to follow him. And he didn't call me into the secular world to work. That would have been fine if he did, but he didn't for me. I heard him calling me to serve him at a church. I've never once questioned his calling in my life. You know why? Because I have heard and experienced the risen Christ in my life. Sometimes, you know, you'll hear things with, not so much in our country, although we're seeing it more and more, but violence in our country. A brother in our church was talking and he's going, hey, you know, if there's just some crazy person that comes into the church and they want to take somebody out, you realize you're probably going to be the first person they're going to go for. I go, yeah, it's an occupational hazard. I understand that. I get it. Aren't you afraid of what? A door? Seriously, a door? When you're not afraid of the door, you know what happens? You have this boldness where you're just like, whatever, it's a door. Oh, is this what you're going to, you're going to put this door here so that this is what's between me and seeing Jesus face to face? Whatever. And I got to tell you that occupational hazard that I just mentioned, it's nothing compared to what some of my fellow brothers in the faith all throughout our world are experiencing. There are those that will give their life and die for Christ today. Some have died for Christ in the span of this service. But you know what? For them to die is to live with Christ because they're going to be resurrected and glorified with God. This has to be so clear to you this morning. If you're a Christian, you can't be afraid of death. You can't be staring at it going, I get it. I don't know if I like the process of falling apart. Fair enough. But death itself, death is your door. Don't be afraid of it. Sometimes in this life, the fog, which is lifting now, this morning first service, it was definitely foggy. And I was like, all right, it's foggy. Here's what I knew. I knew for a fact that the sun still existed. But it was foggy this morning, but I knew that the sun existed. Could I see it? I couldn't see it, but the clouds weren't totally dark, so I knew that it was there. But boy, that, the fog was coming in this morning, right? In that same way in our life, the fog of your circumstances, your trials, your challenges, your crosses, they can come in like a fog in your life. And you know God is real. You know it, but it just doesn't feel that way. And sometimes the fog is in your life for so long, you even start to question and wonder like, wait, is the sun actually out there? Let me share this story with you. The year is 1815, and this is right after a battle. The battle was the Battle of Waterloo. It's the evening of June 18th, 1815. A man stood in the tower of England's Winchester Cathedral and he's looking anxiously out to sea. At last, he found what he was looking for. A ship was coming into port. But while it was a ways off, it was sending a signal by using lights. He strained the watchman to see the message. All of England, the entire country was holding its breath wanting to know the outcome of the war between their leader, the Duke of Wellington, and Napoleon Bonaparte. And the ship is coming in with news of the battle and the outcome. Napoleon Bonaparte ruled all of England, all of Europe except for England, and he still remained a threat. And this decisive battle had just been fought. So the man on the watchtower is looking out and he's ready to relay the news to the other towers in England so the news can spread through the whole country. 
And the signal started to come from the ship and the flashing lights could be seen by the watchman in the cathedral. And he begins to note it. And as he's seeing it, he notices the fog is starting to roll in and obscure the ship. And the heavy fog rolls in, but it rolled in not after the message got through. The message did get through, but for the person who was in that tower, the watchman, he wished he didn't get the message because the message read, Wellington has been defeated. Wellington defeated. And so then he begins to relay that message to the other watchtowers so that that news can spread through all of England. And as it spreads through the countryside, great doom and gloom and sadness spread over the country. And then as that watchman is there, thinking about his future, thinking about how all hope is lost, how their country is lost, he looks back out and the fog is starting to move away. And as the fog is moving away, he sees the ship again and the ship has not stopped signaling the message over and over and over again. And as he looked at the message, he saw it and it said, Wellington defeated the enemy. And all of a sudden, sadness and doom and gloom has absolutely reversed. What changed? Did the message change? The message was always the same message. What changed? The fog that was blocking the message has finally moved out of the way. You know, for the Christian on Good Friday, Christ defeated could be the message that gets heard. Death has won. Christ defeated. But you get to Easter Sunday, the resurrection, and you know what the message is. You get the full message. Christ defeated the enemy. And that means he's victorious, which means if you follow Christ, you also are victorious. Death will not win over you. I don't know what your fog is and what your challenge is in your life. I don't know the thing that's rolled in. And maybe it's been really thick and it's been sitting in your life for a while. But you need to realize this. The sun exists and the sun is still shining. And what we need to pray is that that fog will roll out of your life so that you can see the glory of Jesus in your life. Because when you see it and you have that hope in you, it carries you all the way until you see him face to face. Amen? Let's pray. Papa, as we come before you here, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that the message has never changed. Christ is victorious. And as much as Satan may want to throw the fog in and we focus on our pain and our sorrow and our circumstances and our challenges and our cross, I pray that we would focus on you. And I pray that the cross would be what we would be aiming for so that we would die well for you that we would die to ourselves, that we would die to what we want and that we would live for you and serve you and serve the people that you've put right around us. I pray, God, that we would be great reflectors of your glory so that as your glory shines into our life, we would be like mirrors that can shine it into the people around us that are in darkness, that are in spiritual darkness that so need to have the light of God shine into their lives. God, I pray that you use us from this day to our last day here on earth, that we would not try to rush our death or drag it on, but that it will arrive right on time. I pray that each of us will be doing your work and your business here on this earth up until that day. We have to say, though, we look forward to seeing you face to face, Jesus, in all of your glory. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen.